good to be with you once more. Now, over the course of several Sundays, as many of you are well aware of because you've been here, we have been looking at the promises that Jesus gave to his troubled disciples in John chapter 14. Uh, we've been walking through John, John's gospel, for a little over a year now, and um, we've given more time in preaching to chapter 14 than any other chapter. I think we've got 15 sermons or so in 14. It's just, I think it's because it's, there's just so much going on here with all these promises. But in any case, that's what we've been looking at for a couple of months now, at least. And the disciples, if you weren't with us or haven't been with us, you might be wondering why they were troubled. Well, of course, they were troubled over the fact that Jesus had announced several times, and they began to finally realize it, that he was about to leave them. He was about to be killed and, and resurrected and ascend and all that, which are things that they did not understand. So they are all emotionally mixed up, distraught over the idea of losing the, the physical presence of Jesus. He's going to be gone from them soon after spending three years with them, physically doing ministry and walking all over Israel and doing the things that they did. So they're, they're kind of heartbroken over this reality now. They're starting to really realize what's going on. And this morning, as we've been looking at promises, this morning we're going to look at the eighth promise that we see in chapter 14. It's the promise of gospel perspicuity. How many of you can say the word perspicuity? Yeah, somebody just said perspiration. Um, it's not the promise of gospel sweat. Uh, perspicuity, and if you don't rehearse it a lot, you'll do what I just did and you'll, you'll stumble through it. But in Latin, it basically means to see through to see through something, almost like um, Superman's x-ray vision, right, uh, if you're a Superman fan. But it means to see through, and synonyms for it would be intelligibility, transparency, uh, plainness, and my personal favorite would be clarity, clarity. So when you hear the word perspicuity, think of clarity, think of clearness, think of transparency. But for our purposes, clarity is what I'll probably be referencing throughout this sermon and the question becomes, why did Jesus, or why would Jesus, promise to give gospel perspicuity clarity to his disciples here? Why is this one of the promises among many, right? This is the eighth one. There's all sorts of promises here in 14. Why is this one of the promises? Why would he promise to give them this? Well, the answer is very simple. Just think about the logic of it. Why would they need to have gospel clarity? Because they don't rightly understand the gospel at this juncture. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And if you think about how important it would be for anyone in the whole world to have gospel perspicuity, clarity, wouldn't it be this group of men who are going to take over the ministry and take the gospel out to the nations? Of course. So above all, these men needed to, to understand the gospel because they, they needed this perspicuity because they are the sent ones. What does sent one translate? Apostle. They are the apostles. They're the ones who are going to take the ministry out after Jesus leaves. Now, you might be thinking, well, since they didn't understand the gospel, then maybe they didn't really believe in Jesus. Maybe they weren't saved at this point. And some people would argue they weren't. I have seen Jesus commend them for their belief through his entire ministry. They obviously believed they believed that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the, the Savior of the world. They no doubt believed this, but they had a very, very hard time with his death, burial, and resurrection. Those facets of the gospel confounded them. Every time he brought those things up, they were like, huh? So 
they had this truly Jewish view of Messiah, right? It's a very one-dimensional conqueror kind of view. And, and today the Jews still, the faithful Jews, the, the ones who are actually religious, they actually still hold this view, but it's this idea of a conqueror. And I wonder if the reason why Jesus' disciples, who were well-versed in Scripture at this point, I wonder if they had never read passages that present their own Messiah as a suffering servant, like Isaiah 53. It's questionable as to, even though they were Jewish and they were raised in what I would maybe refer to, and I don't mean any racial connotation to it, but like Jew school, literally. They would, from infancy, they would be trained in the Old Testament. They, they would memorize large swatches of it, if not the whole Old Testament. So they were educated, but I wonder if they had never read, been subjected to, presented with those passages that talk about the other dimension of their Messiah as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, for instance, right? He was pierced for our transgressions, right? And I once read that Jews deliberately omit those texts from their scripture, from the Torah, because they despise the very notion or idea that Messiah would be pierced for their transgressions, that he would be crushed for their iniquities, that he would um, suffer and die to cover their sins. After all, most Jews believe there's no reason that they would ever need a Messiah that would perform that task for them because they already believe they're okay because of their adherence to God's law and the sacrificial system that's gone now. So I, I literally read somewhere years ago that they omit those passages that talk about Jesus or the Messiah as a suffering servant, and they put all the emphasis on the Messiah as a conqueror in the Davidic line or in the line of King David, who was a conquering king. Now, examples of the disciples' gospel ignorance can be clearly seen throughout the Lord's ministry. In other words, you can see throughout his entire ministry how they did not grasp the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. They, they didn't understand it. I mean, when Jesus foretold his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, how did Peter respond Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, right? And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, right? For you do not understand or know the will of God, and you are hindering the things of God, right? So clearly Jesus presents to the, to the disciples, look, I've got I've to be betrayed, I've got to die, and I'm going to rise. And Peter says, it's never going to happen on my watch. Clearly not understanding. If he'd understood the gospel, he would have probably said something like, I'll help you get to the cross, Right? I'll help assist them in killing you because that's my redemption. I don't know if he would have said that. That's weird. But you know what I mean. If he understood the gospel, he'd be like, well, so be it. Well, no, he wants to get in the way. He wants to stop Jesus from accomplishing what he came to accomplish to do. When Jesus foretold his death, glorification, and return or ascension to the Father, back in chapter 13, 31 to 36 of John, how did the disciples respond? Well, Peter began by making an empty promise, I will lay down my life for you. He got rebuked, right? The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then the entire group began to despair. In fact, they just told you that they were heartbroken over the idea of losing Jesus. Well, that heartbreak started at the end of chapter 13. Clearly, they did not understand the gospel. 
And at the end of 13, we see them kind of like just reality hits. Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to be glorified in all these things. And the bottom falls out for them. And this is precisely why chapter 14 begins with this heartfelt, loving, merciful exhortation from Jesus to them. What does he say? What are the first words of chapter 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Why did he say that to them? Because their hearts were troubled over the idea of losing him. They were distraught over Jesus' departure during dinner, the Last Supper, and, and they failed, they literally failed to comprehend the promises that he was expounding for them in chapter 14 during that time at the supper table. Eight of them so far, we'll see one more next week, Lord willing. They didn't even hear the promises in the right way. They, they weren't hearing anything. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce wrote, the Lord had announced his departure to them, and this had so seized upon their minds that they were not really hearing what Jesus was saying. He had spoken about another helper, but they were not interested enough in the other helper even to learn about him. All they could grasp at this moment was that Jesus was to be taken from them. Have you ever been so distraught that you actually don't hear what the person standing in front of you is telling you, or you totally misunderstand or misinterpret what they're saying, this is precisely what happened to them at the supper table. I'm leaving. What? What do you mean? And you're saying we can't go with you? I mean, they were completely blown out, and they didn't even rightly hear these promises or anything else that Jesus was saying. So as you can see, there was a, a great need for gospel perspicuity, clarity, among the disciples. They did not yet understand the gospel, nor were they able to grasp the promises in John 14, or probably the things that are mentioned in 15, 16, and 17. And even the high priestly prayer probably baffled them. Now, Jesus is amazing, however. He totally understands their problem. He understands it perfectly. And in the midst of, of this great and grand farewell discourse, which I think is probably one of the best pieces of Scripture in all of Scripture, he basically says to them, I know that you're hurting. I know that it's difficult for you to understand what I've been saying tonight and over the course of the last three years. But after I leave, after I leave, I promise it will all make sense. I promise you will understand. You will understand. So the question becomes, how will Jesus carry out this particular promise to them, the promise of gospel perspicuity? How will he give it to them? How will he bring it about? Well, the answer is in our next section. The next section in John that we're going to look at this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. Our focus this morning will be on verses 25 and 26, as you see on the screen. John chapter 14, 25 and 26, and let's begin at verse 25. Verse 25 says, and this is Jesus continuing to speak. There's no lapse in what he's teaching here. 14 just flows, and he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Here, Jesus sets the context 
the um, foundation for the eighth promise. This is how he segues into it. He kind of interrupts the moment and says, look, I have been saying all of these things to you as I have been walking with you and living among you and these things. It's almost as if he said, while I was with you, I taught you many things. Think of it like that. And this was his way of, of letting them know that he was totally aware of their struggle to understand his teachings, his promises, everything that he said to them. So this is the context for the next verse where we see the promise. He's acknowledging, look, I've been teaching you a lot of things, and I understand that you do not yet understand. And, and Jesus is absolutely convinced of it because he's omniscient, which means he knows all things, but he can also read people like no one else, and he can see their heartbreak, their tears, the murmurings, the groanings, and all of that, and he can see that they're not at peace, and he has just unpacked seven of the most incredible promises I've ever seen anywhere, and yet to no avail. They're still destroyed. And he just tells him, look, I get it. And then he sets the stage. Now we look at verse 26. And this is where we'll spend most of our time. Jesus continues by saying, but the helper. And here he identifies who the helper is. He mentioned the helper earlier, but he didn't identify the helper. Here he identifies the helper. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wow, what a statement. What a statement. And this is precisely where we see the answer to our question, right? How will Jesus fulfill this promise? How will he bring it to them? He will fulfill his promise of gospel perspicuity to his disciples through the helper, through the comforter, other translations say. Through who? The Holy Spirit. This is who he will do it through. The Holy Spirit will deliver this promise and give it to them. And then he goes on to describe how the Holy Spirit will do it, how he'll manifest this promise to them. But before we examine the Holy Spirit's methods, we need to make a few observations. First, I want you to notice the Trinitarian nature of verse 26. All three members of the Holy Trinity of the Godhead are listed in this verse. We see God the Holy Spirit, who's the helper. We see God the Father sending. And we see God the Son in the phrase, my name. Jesus is referring to himself. And, and I, I pause to mention this to you because there aren't many singular verses in the Bible where you see the entire Godhead represented. There's only a tiny minority or handful of them. And we see back in verse 16 of this very chapter that John did this there. There's only a, a, a small collection of singular verses where we see this. And guess what? Two of them are right here in John 14. God is one in three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Anyone who ever wants to argue with you that, that God is God and the Spirit is an emanation and Jesus is just an earthly vessel or whatever, just take them to John's Gospel. Take them to chapter 14. 
Take the Jehovah Witness to chapter 14 and say, no, you're incorrect. They are both equally God. They are all equally divine. It's here. That's the first observation. Second observation, notice how Jesus said the Father will send. There's great debate over who sends the Holy Spirit because there are passages that that talk about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit and the Father sending the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? God sends the Holy Spirit. It's either God or the Son or both of them. So we don't have to make a kind of debate over which one sent. Well, it's only the Father that sends him. Well, it's only only Jesus that sends him. Well, you got these two camps. It's utterly ridiculous. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. But notice that, the idea of the Helper, the Spirit being sent, being sent from heaven, from God's throne. It is very, very important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is sent. He is sent. And and not only is He sent, but here in this text, He is sent by the Father. So if you're inquisitive or curious or whatever, you might be wondering, well, whom does the Father send the Spirit to? Okay, we've established the fact that the Spirit isn't just roaming around here, that He's literally sent. Now the question is, whom is He sent to? Or who is He sent to? To everyone? Well, some would argue absolutely. I would argue absolutely not. No, He is not sent to every single person who's ever existed. The Holy Spirit is not sent in that way. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to those whom He has given to Jesus. Do you remember what we studied in chapter 6 of John? It speaks entirely of predestination, entirely of election, entirely of particular redemption, over and over and over. If you believe that Jesus came to die for everyone, go read John 6 and submit to the text because He didn't. He came to die for His particular people, which is a vast number according to Revelation 7-9. It's not just four or five people in this church who are praising God right now. Or you're saying, well, at least I know I'm one of them, right? The preacher has to be one of them. Now, he sends the Holy Spirit to those whom he has given to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 39, and granted access to Jesus. He sends the Spirit to those whom he has granted access to Jesus. What does John 6, 65 say? He has sent the Holy Spirit to that group, and the Holy Spirit, what, draws them or effectually calls those individuals to Jesus for salvation. John chapter 6, verse 44. It's all listed in there, who the Spirit comes to, who Jesus came to die to, might die for. It's all there. Now, in experiential terms, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of salvation in the life of a dead sinner. Salvation predates that moment. It goes all the way back into eternity past at no particular time, but just in eternity at some point, God, he, and I can't even say at some point because that establishes a timeline. He foreloved his people and set aside his people to redeem, to give to Jesus as a gift. So salvation predates the moment that somebody believes, but in experiential terms, in terms of experiencing it, it begins then when the Spirit comes to that person or is sent to that person. When the Holy Spirit comes into that person, He regenerates him or her spiritually or causes them to be born again and thus receive a new nature. 
That's the first change. That's the first thing that happens in experiential terms in salvation. Before a person can believe or do anything, they have to have their nature changed from a dead sinner to a now one who has been born of God or born again as John 3 illustrates. This is a truth that has baffled people forever. It blew the mind of Nicodemus because that's who Jesus was speaking to in chapter 3. And this new nature that the Holy Spirit imparts or brings about, this new heart that he gives, a new attitude and all that, it is characterized by friendliness toward God and a sincere longing for God. In other words, that's when a person becomes a true seeker. Because the scripture clearly says over and over and over that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and no one does what is good and no one seeks God. Scripture establishes that. But at this point, when they're born again, when they're regenerated, when they're made new and given a new nature, now they seek. Now they say, something's different about me. And they can't quite put their finger on what it is. All of a sudden, they sense this desire for God. This is precisely what I experienced when I was saved. And then the Holy Spirit, once he causes them to be born again, he's sent right by the Father and he goes into that person And then he grants the gifts, these wonderful gifts of repentance and faith. 1 Timothy 2.25, you see there it says that God grants repentance. Not everyone gets it. He grants it to those particular individuals. And then obviously faith is totally and absolutely a gift. It's foreign. It comes into us through the Spirit, Ephesians 2.8. And guess what? That newly born-again person does once they receive these gifts, which come simultaneously, they... That newly regenerated person gladly receives those things. He doesn't say, well, I don't think I want to believe. He finally or she finally realizes, I think I finally found what I've always been longing for and looking for. Goodbye, dope. You never did it for me. Goodbye, fornication. You never did it for me. Goodbye this. Goodbye that. But that person gladly receives and gladly exercises that repentance and faith. And repentance is never a singular act. It's a lifestyle. And faith is not a one-time thing. I believe, then I go back to business as usual. Faith is living, breathing. It is proved through good deeds and these sorts of things, right? We show that we have it. The bottom line is this. If God does not send the Holy Spirit, none of what I've just taught you happens in the life of a person. None of it. If he does not send, there is no receiving, none of it. None of it transpires in the life of a person. Sinners remain in their sins, and you might be thinking, how cruel to leave them as they are. Do we not realize that they love their sin and that's what they prefer? It's not like they're sitting there going, well, I I really missed out on a chance to have God. They're still maintaining the same disposition of, I hate God and don't want to submit to him. They don't feel any different. They stay just as they always have been. Their natural desire is for sin, and they willfully, their will is corrupt, but they willfully continue to choose sin and rebellion. They stay in the same mode that they were in. Now, if you are a Christian, you need to understand it is not because of you. It's not because of you. It's not because of what you did. You're not a Christian because you believed in Jesus. You're not a Christian because you earned your way with God. You're not a Christian because you prayed some kind of prayer at a crusade or an alleged revival meeting, Billy Graham or whoever. 
You're not a Christian because of you. You're a, if you are a Christian, you're a Christian because of God. Why? Because he sent the Holy Spirit to you, which he predestined and pre-planned to do in eternity past. He foreloved you, decided way back to put his mercy upon you, and at his appointed time, he did that for you. He made you a Christian. Yes, you exercise faith. Yes, you have to work with your faith and, and grow your faith and study the Word of God and these sorts of things, but you're not the author or perfecter of it. Jesus is. But in any case, you're a Christian because of him. He foreloved you. He set you apart as his own, as a gift to the Son and he sent the Spirit to you to bring those things into you. And of course, you are changed. You exercise your will, in, which is a new restored will at that point, to pursue Christ. That's how it works, guys. That's what the Bible teaches over and over. And yet, so many vast swatches of Christians today are absolutely ignorant of what Scripture teaches about these things. No, this is the work of God. How else... Can God get all the glory for it? As Scripture says over and over and over, if there's, any, if there's one drop of us in our effort or anything involved in this thing, how can God be totally and 100% glorified? He gets all the glory because it's all Him doing it. And certainly we participate, but only once we've been given a new nature because the old nature is dead in sin I love the idea of God setting me apart in eternity past and having this plan for me. And I always say to God, why did you wait 30-something years, man? I could have avoided a lot of trouble, man. <laughs> His reply is because you wouldn't have become the preacher that you are today and be able to speak and, and help people with your experience, experiences and you yourself being a doper at one time and all these things. Well, okay, fine. Use it for your glory, but I still would have rather not dealt with some of that junk. Well, he's got the timing down. He knows what's best. In eternity past, he foreloved you. He set you apart as his own. And in the present moment, he sent the Holy Spirit to come into you and raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ Jesus. This is the entire point of half of the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 2. That's the second observation. Third observation, notice how the text says, will send in my name. In other words, the Father sends the Spirit in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. To be sent in someone's name carries with it the idea of being sent as their emissary or on their behalf. Somebody comes to you, hey, I'm, I'm coming over here from, you know, Tom, you work at, uh, at the Chevrolet dealership in Merced. Somebody comes to you from the dealership here. I have been sent here from American Chevrolet, and immediately you're thinking, we're a far superior dealership. See, he's nodding his head. Wanted to see if there was a little pride in my brother, found it, after I caused him to stumble. Somebody comes over, they're a representative of American Chevrolet, right? They come and they're a representative, they're an emissary, an advocate, an ambassador, in a sense, for that dealership. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. He will send the helper in my name. In other words, he will send him as my representative, as my advocate, and that's why helper translates as advocate. He will come as my emissary. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is precisely who the Holy Spirit is. He is the emissary of the Lord Jesus. MacArthur said, 
Just as Jesus came in the Father's name, so also will the Spirit come in Jesus' name. As another helper like Jesus, the Spirit will always act in perfect harmony with Christ's desires, purposes, and will. Isn't that cool? He comes as a perfect representative, representing the precise desires and will of the Son. In fact, there is no deviation in the execution of the Son's plan and will. The Spirit comes and exercises, executes it with precision, with accuracy, and with a heart filled with love for the Son because the Trinity loves each other in absolute perfection. This is why they submit to each other. In the divine plan, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to testify about Jesus Christ and to bring Jesus Christ glory. So when you think of the Holy Spirit, His primary purpose is to make Jesus known and to make Jesus' glory known. In other words, it is not His primary purpose, or even not even primary, it's not even one of His purposes, none of which anyone can assign this to Him. His purpose is not to serve superficial, self-centered Christians as a magic genie who will bestow whatever they call upon him for. And why do I say this? Because there are massive denominations in the world today that use the Spirit in this fashion, and many of them are in our own community a few miles from here. They treat the Holy Spirit like Aladdin's genie and beseech him and call upon him to give Signs and wonders and healings and prosperity and health and wealth and all of these temporal, useless things will not even be in heaven. To treat the Holy Spirit as such is to blaspheme. His purpose is not to come and serve as our genie. It is to make Christ known and to bring Him glory. Remember that as Jesus' emissary, the Holy Spirit performs many other tasks, but that's the primary to make him known in his glory. But he does a lot of things for Christ. And I described one such task a moment ago, right, as he regenerates and effectually calls Jesus' particular unique people, the elect. He calls them to Jesus, the Savior, right? I'm bring the Spirit, think of it like this, the Holy Spirit comes, he's sent by the Father, he comes to bring Jesus' sheep, who's the great shepherd, right, to him. He comes and brings them. He delivers them. He comes and plucks them out of death, gives them life, and delivers them. It's like they're out there roaming around out there in the wilderness. And he goes out there and he finds them and he brings them to Jesus. And he places them in Jesus' sheepfold. That is a great way to think about it, to look at it. Now let's look at the rest of 26, right? Those are three observations. John lists two more things in this text that the Holy Spirit does for Jesus Let's examine each of them. Number one, the Holy Spirit teaches. He teaches. Verse 26b, right? What did Jesus say? Father will send the helper in my name as my emissary, my advocate. 26b, he will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is the teacher of divine truth. He is the illuminator of divine truth. He is the interpreter of divine truth. Why? Because divine truth can only be interpreted spiritually, meaning you need the Spirit to interpret it rightly. So, the order is the Father will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, as the emissary of the Lord Jesus to teach the disciples all things. This is, these are Jesus' teachings. This is what he said. 
What is meant by all things? Seems pretty broad. Seems all-inclusive. And some interpret all things to mean precisely that. They suggest that it refers to everything that can be taught and learned. Literally everything, including secular knowledge. And this is an absolutely ridiculous notion. You, you cannot take all things literally. You have to hold it in its context, and I'll get to that. But some say, man, this includes all of the sciences and philosophy and, and even secular knowledge. And, and it just, it, it, these disciples are going to obtain a knowledge of all things as if they're going to become like God who knows all things, except what sin is like. He knows its effect. He punishes it, but he's not a sinner. I mean, to suggest that the Holy Spirit is interested in imparting all things, especially secular knowledge to Jesus' disciples, is the pinnacle of foolishness. Secular knowledge is opposed to the truth, opposed to the kingdom of God. So, I don't know where these guys come up with this stuff. Secular knowledge means godless knowledge. Why would the Holy Spirit be interested in teaching the disciples or anyone else about secular knowledge? We've got plenty of fallen devil-serving people out there in our colleges and everywhere else to do that job. Why would the Spirit come and just continue on in their wonderful ministry? No, he, he counteracts it with divine truth. I literally read that and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. There's some in churches that teach that this means everything? Secular knowledge? There's no interest in God. We already have that. Did anyone here go to public school? You're an expert in secular knowledge. Did anyone go to college? You're even higher. We don't need God to give us the knowledge of this. We need him to counteract it and teach us the truth. I don't need to know anything more about 49 genders. Secular knowledge. Preposterous. Others suggest that all things doesn't have anything to do with secular knowledge, but it refers to everything that can be known about God. Now, this is equally as stupid. Sorry, that sounds insensitive. Dumb. Sorry, that sounds insensitive. Ignorant. Is that better? To, to think that any mortal, finite human being can possess a full knowledge of the deity is, is the pinnacle of ignorance. I mean, what? I can barely get my mind around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now I'm going to know all things about God, who has no starting point, no end, Alpha, Omega, created all things. God is infinite. And some of you would say, you mean infinite. Yes. It's like saying Amen and Ammon. God is infinite, infinite, which means that he cannot be fully known or totally known by that which is finite. And some folks will tell you, well, you know, this is what I'm waiting for, man. When I die and go to heaven because I love Jesus, I'm going to know everything there is to know about God. Time to hit the buzzer. <clears throat> no, you won't. Why? Because you're finite. What's two plus two? Uh, you don't even know that. But I'll know God fully. No, you won't. Yeah, you won't know everything there is to know about him. You never, ever, ever, ever will possess that knowledge. Not even in a glorified body will you possess an absolute, total knowledge of the Godhead. No way! There's only 
one person who's infinite, and that's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Only they can know each other perfectly and everything there is to know. And they don't even have to think about it. It's just there. Not even with resurrection bodies in a glorified state shall we achieve this. We do not have the mental capacity to behold the totality of God. We do not. Now, salvation is, is in absolutely about knowing God and about spending eternity with God, but it is not about knowing everything there is to know about God or fully comprehending all that He is. It is not about that. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm getting shortchanged. Well, maybe you're not saved if you feel like that because I'm perfectly happy with knowing what I know right now. And I'm, I'm looking forward to growing in my knowledge through all eternity, but I'm not sitting here setting expectations. God, you better teach me everything there is to know about you. He gives us exactly what we need to know about him. Be thankful that he's revealed himself to you because if he hadn't, guess what? You'd know nothing of him. Be dead in your sins still. God reveals to his people what they need to know and understand about him. And they will spend eternity learning about him and serving him and worshiping him. But a million, a trillion years from now, you will not have possessed anywhere near the full capacity of all that God is. He is infinite, beyond. He transcends. He goes beyond all things. This universe that he's created sits on the tip of his pinky. He's vast, immeasurable, infinite, purely glorious, holy, holy, holy. To behold him at all is the highest privilege a human being can ever experience, but you will never know him all the way. You will never know everything there is to know about him. So it's impossible that Jesus was referring to everything he wasn't referring to secular knowledge in ever, all the sciences and philosophy and all that. He wasn't referring to that, and he certainly wasn't referring to a full, total, perfect knowledge of who God is if he wasn't referring to that which others suggest he was, which is ridiculous and lunacy. What was he referring to when he says all things? Well, what is the context? What did he say in verse 25? These things... That's what he's referring to. The things that I spoke to you while I was with you. People come up with these ideas because they don't understand the context. They don't read the verses before or after, and they take one verse, pluck it out of its context, and run crazy with it. If you read verse 25, you can see that all things is limited to that which I taught you while I was with you. That's the right way to look at it. All things in verse 26 refers to the things that, that Jesus spoke to them while he was with them. What did he primarily speak to them about while he was with them? And what did they continuously fail to rightly understand? The gospel. <laughs> the very thing that they don't understand here. All things refers to everything that pertains to the gospel. Love what Keller said about the gospel years ago. He said, you know, it's, it's like a swimming pool. It has a shallow end and a deep end. It's easy enough to understand, like the shallow end, where a little toddler can splash around in there, but it has a deep end to it, too, where an elephant can swim. The gospel is simple and yet profound 
and mysterious in some aspects of it. Like when you're talking about election and eternity past and all that stuff, that's just like beyond my pay grade, beyond my finiteness. It's simple and yet profound, so profound that the angels, it says in 1 Peter, never tire of looking into it. Angels are superior to us in every way, vastly superior intellect, abilities. They're, They're way beyond us. In fact, every time someone saw one in the scripture, they fell down and started worshiping it. They're superior to us, and yet the gospel's intricacy and beautiful detail, it's like a diamond with all these facets, it perplexes them and causes them to look into it. I think what the angels are confounded by is the idea of God saving anyone. Like the angels understand human depravity better than we do. You want to save them? You see what they're doing? Yeah, I got a plan. Here, never mind. That's a good plan. <laughs> Gabriel, oh no, I think he's lost it. I just, when I think of me, I think of why would you choose me? And oh man, I'm a mess. And I think that's what the angels look at. Again, the order: the Father will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus's emissary to teach the disciples. All things that pertain to the gospel, this right here, my friends, is the promise of gospel perspicuity. Gospel clarity. As I noted earlier, this group, above all others, needed to clearly understand the gospel because they were Jesus' apostles, his sent ones. How would they be able to fulfill their commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation if they didn't rightly understand the gospel? Right? I mean, these are the guys that are going to go out and and take it to the nations. And you think of the Apostle Paul, literally take it to the nations. How could they do that task that they were charged with if they didn't understand what they were taking out there? you got to understand God is perfect in his plan. He never, ever puts the carriage ahead of the horse. Before he sends a, a believer out, a disciple of Jesus Christ out to proclaim the gospel, he teaches and trains them in the gospel through the Holy Spirit. God always prepares that which he's going to send. He always equips and gets his people ready for the task and trains them. I wondered for years why I had not yet become a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor like the moment I got saved and baptized. I was like, man, I think I got to be a pastor. I think that's what God's calling me to do. I want to preach the word. I don't really know it, but I want to preach it. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to, uh, I don't know, John, I had a Spanish version. Take it to 1.3.16. That's literally what it says. I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted to preach, and I wanted people to know about Jesus. But God's plan for me was to educate and equip and to give me... I I have a fuller understanding of the gospel today than I did then, but to give me an understanding of it that was enough to preach and proclaim. But it took years and years and years for me to get into pastoral ministry. He doesn't get the carriage ahead of the horse. He always equips the believer and, and whoever, whomever he's going to send, he always gets them up to gospel speed, so to speak, and he does it. Who? Who does he do it through? The Holy Spirit, who's our teacher, right? Now, sadly, the primary thing many, many churches today look for in potential missionaries is the desire to go rather than a robust biblical theology and sound doctrine. I mean, it's almost like pastors are desperate to find people who are willing to go to, you know, to Uganda. Well, this guy mentioned Uganda. I think he wants to go. Let's get it. Let's get him a plane ticket. 
there's really almost no, absolutely no concern about the theology or this person's understanding of the gospel or theology or anything. And yet it's the desire to go that, that prompts the pastor to get things in order and go. And, and, and many missionaries today aren't even trained. They're not even trained. They might be given some language courses because, you know, if you go to Uganda, your slang English you speak in East San Jose is probably not going to work there. Theology is not high on the list, and it's, it's just so tragic. And I would say in my humble opinion, which is probably worth, I don't know, a peso or two, one of the worst things a church can do is send out ill-equipped missionaries. They literally do more damage than good. They do. They do more damage than good. And some would say, you're nuts, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, because at least they're out there preaching Christ, you know? They're out there preaching Christ, they know how to do that. Well, they may not know what you know or what that guy over there knows. They might not have more degrees than R.C. Sproul or something like that, but, you know, at least they're out there preaching Christ. How can you say that? Well, I would argue that we are commissioned, scripturally commissioned, to do more than simply mention Christ's name and point people to him. We are commissioned to preach about Christ and describe who he is, describe why he came, describe what he accomplished on our behalf, right, to lost and dead sinners, we are commissioned to baptize new believers and, and teach them all that Christ commanded. This is the work of the missionary. This is the work of the pastor. This is the work of the lay leader. This is the work of the regular Christian who works at Home Depot. In my humble opinion, anyone who seeks to go abroad and, and perform foreign missions must have a biblical soteriology, which is a right understanding of how salvation actually works before they even get near the boat, the plane, however they're going there. They have to be grounded in the clear teachings of Scripture on these matters. And they're not typically. And you may not understand this or know this. I'm going to give you a little history lesson, but this is one of the reasons why evangelicalism is in a very, very sad and tragic state in America today. And you can actually trace the starting point of trouble. Early, middle, 1700s, certain missionaries came over from Britain. I'm not talking about the Puritanic pilgrims. I'm not talking about the pilgrims that came over. They were Puritans. They had good theology, and that was way earlier. And these missionaries who came over... They began to spread unbiblical views of salvation, such as things that we call semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism, to an entire generation of pastors who then spread those false teachings about salvation to the next generation and so on and so forth. These unbiblical views immediately led to unbiblical evangelistic tactics that were in the ah, 1820s called new measures. And the most notable new measure would be one that was perpetuated by a, a guy named um, Charles Finney. And it, the most notable of all, most popular, would be called the anxious seat. How many of you have ever heard of the anxious seat? One person who goes to seminary at John MacArthur's. Praise God that they're teaching their men about this stuff. And that's another thing that's never taught anywhere is church history. Huge mistake. Those who don't understand history are deemed to repeat it. And this anxious seat became this big, big thing. And what it was was a section of chairs near the stage was cordoned off. 
And the preacher would urge those who wanted to become Christians to leave their regular seats and come sit in that designated area on an anxious seat. There's an old story about a preacher who had a hard time getting folks to come to the anxious seats one night. Kept pleading with them to come. Nobody was coming. The people were just sitting there going, duh. You know? There's an old story, and, and this story is nonfiction. This is true. This is a, an actual legitimate historical account, and I'm going to read you part of his sermon. You ready? He says this to this massive group. Do you not love God? Will you not say you love God? And then he, it says, he took out his watch and continued. There now, I give you a quarter of an hour. If you do not come down in 15 minutes to love God, there will be no hope for you. You will be lost. You will be damned. And guess what? Crickets. No response. And he continued, 10 minutes have elapsed. There is five minutes left for salvation. If you do not come down and love God in five minutes, you will be lost forever. And the terrified candidates came down and confessed. The record was made, and a hundred converts were reported. Here's what's incredible about this. Does that surprise anyone? If you know anything about church, it shouldn't, because you've been to a church that does this. Okay, this is, this is like the middle 1800s. And it, you, would, you would say it's a playbook right out of the church over on the corner down the street. These exact same tactics are used today. Where do you suppose they came from? Those who brought them over. There are literally pastors in our community who use these same tactics. I recently heard one guy say, I, I don't know how I did it or why I did it. My wife always gets angry because I always get angry when I see this stuff. She's like, every time you watch something like that, it spins you out and you spin me out and you know what it's like to have me spun out. He literally says to this massive group of people, I saw the video, I watched the video, I don't know why, but I did and I couldn't, I was just tractor beam. And he says, if you do not come down from the balcony to the stage right now, you will miss your opportunity to be saved. Apparently, he's never read John 6.39, and this is the will of the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, I will lose none. There is no such thing as a lost opportunity for salvation, according to Jesus and men who use these tactics are not creating opportunities for salvation. They are creating false assurance in those who respond and an avenue, in fact, a highway for unconverted people to enter the church. They are sweeping tares right into the church. That's what they're doing through these tactics. A faithful brother and theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary back in this day named Samuel Miller he was a, a brilliant man. He was a Presbyterian. He witnessed the advent of the anxious seat and, and, and its harmful effects on churches in Pennsylvania and in New York and in, in New England. He saw all of it, and he wrote this. He said, the anxious seat favored the rapid multiplication of superficial, ignorant, untrained professors of religion. Wow. You need to understand something, people. 
We need to understand something. It is the Holy Spirit who converts sinners. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches and, and manifests the promises of Jesus in the lives of God's people, true disciples, even the promise of gospel perspicuity. It's, 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 not, an, it's not pastors and preachers who do these things. This is the work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit to save. It is the work of the Spirit to sanctify through the teaching. And all we're really called to do, according to Scripture, if you're in my role or really anything, you just preach the Word of God and you pray for people and you leave the results in God's hands. Don't connect some physical mechanism to your preaching because then people will be basing all their hope on the fact that they came forward rather than the Savior they were supposedly going to believe in. Salvation is not a physical act. It is a spiritual act. So don't tie a physical act to it. And men are doing this all day, every day. It's probably happening right now all over town. And it's very, very dangerous. In any case, understand it is the Spirit who does these things, not men and their, their methods, their tactics. And I'll tell you, man, the disciples needed this gospel perspicuity before they entered the mission field, as I've been trying to illustrate. They needed to understand the gospel before they go out and preach the gospel. And guess what? They received it. They received it through the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came to them in an unprecedented way on Pentecost. You ever notice how they were very mixed up and timid and shy and prone to a lot of foolishness prior to Pentecost, asking questions, totally confused, doing the things we see them do in this chapter of 14 of John, and yet after Pentecost, you don't see any of that again. They have the Spirit, they understand the gospel, they go. That's the first thing, right, the Holy Spirit teaches. The second thing, the Holy Spirit reminds. Verse 26c, Jesus says, He will not only teach you all things that pertain to the gospel, He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, over the course of three years, Jesus had presented an enormous amount of truth to His disciples. He said a lot of things. Think of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Good night. You ever seen Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on that sermon? It's about 600 pages. And guess what? He didn't even scratch the surface. That is an incredible sermon. And then here's the disciples being exposed to all of that teaching, everything that Jesus said there. How about, how about if we just stop here and look at this farewell discourse? John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 17, all that Jesus said there. One of the things that disciples and every believer suffers from is a lack of retention, the ability to remember what has been learned. Anyone resonate with that? <laughs> Take Philip, for example, not this one, the disciple, the apostle, right? In chapter 1, think of it, think of Philip in, in John. We, we, we've looked at him in, in, in the Gospel of John, but back in chapter 1, verse 45, we see that he understood who Jesus is. He basically tells Nathaniel, we have found the divine Messiah, the one whom Moses, the law, and the prophets point to. But then in chapter 14, what we've been looking at back in verse 8, he totally forgets the deity of Christ and asks Jesus to show them the Father. Forgetfulness. How about Judas, not Iscariot? He was present with the other disciples at the temple when Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd 
who knows his sheep and who lays down his life for his sheep, right? Chapter 10, verses 7 through 21. He listened to that whole, that whole exposition of election and, and the sheep and the shepherd and all that stuff. In other words, he knew that redemption is particular, that it is for only the sheep of Jesus. And yet in chapter 14, verse 22, he forgets this truth, gets frustrated, and asks the Lord why he will not manifest himself to the entire world. Forgetfulness. And I tell you what, the older I get, the more I see this in my life. My goodness, I forget God's promises. I forget that I'm a new creation who is called to live differently. I forget that Jesus loves me at times, right? And this always results in fear and insecurity. I sometimes forget what I'm talking about in a conversation with someone who's standing across from me. I'll be just talking to them all of a sudden, and I'll say, what was I talking about? And they're like, I have no idea. I wasn't listening. And I'm like, no harm, no foul. Let's talk about guns. I mean, it's embarrassing. And I'll tell you what, difficult circumstances will, will multiply this. It, they, they help to cloud our memory, do they not? Trials, tribulations, sickness. And this is what the disciples were experiencing in this very moment. They were devastated over the idea of losing Jesus' physical presence to the point that they, were seem, they had seemingly forgot everything that they had learned. Oh, the disciples needed... They needed more than this knowledge of all truth, gospel perspicuity. They also needed the power and ability to remember it and retain it, right? Learning is great, but remembering is great. What good does it do to learn truth and not remember it? No good. And the Holy Spirit alone provides these two things. He will teach the disciples the gospel, and he will supernaturally help them remember and retain it. He will even call to their memories precisely what they need to know and say at critical moments, like when they are brought before religious leaders and authorities and rulers, right? Luke 12, 11 through 12. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit will call to their memories what they saw and heard during Jesus' ministry and inspire them to record these things on paper. And what did these things they wrote down on paper later become? The new Testament. It is incredible to know that the New Testament in our Bibles that we read and study on a regular basis is the direct result of this particular promise, the promise of gospel perspicuity, as well as the Spirit's presence and power in the lives of those who pen this stuff. That's incredible to think, and you must understand the Old Testament is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. It simply features different authors, different writing genres or writing styles, different stories, different covenants, and so on. And yet, its primary purpose is exactly that of the New Testament, to point its readers to Messiah. In John 5.39, Jesus told the religious leaders, you search the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, you study all this, and the fact that you do not believe in me shows that you do not understand the purpose of this. And the purpose is me. This whole book 
this whole book, all, all books, 66 books we have here. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I like what MacArthur wrote as we begin to wrap up. He said, the Holy Spirit inspired the very words of Scripture, not merely the thoughts of the writers. <clears throat> the Bible is therefore inerrant and authoritative, and thus the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It alone contains the sacred writings which are able to give one the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, which is in Christ Jesus. Closing, I'd like to invite the band to go ahead and come up. They'll get in place. Just pay attention to me. The promise of gospel perspicuity was intended for the disciples who were sitting around this supper table with Jesus that night. I think its primary purpose was for them. I mean, they walked with Jesus and, and saw what he did and, and listened to his teachings. And it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to bring those things to memory and inspire them as they wrote them down, right? I mean, just think of that. Out of all people, these men needed this promise, at least at this juncture. And yet, the promise of gospel perspicuity was also intended for another handful of godly men who also recorded Scripture, men like John Mark, Luke, James, Jude, the Apostle Paul, and the author of Hebrews, which I think might be Barnabas. We don't know. It was held that it was Paul for centuries. So it was intended for the disciples primarily and, and those who authored Scripture or wrote Scripture, not authored, but wrote Scripture, recorded Scripture, inspired and wrote it later. And yet, this promise is, in a sense, intended for every true believer, in that the Holy Spirit works to bring about gospel perspicuity in us, right? Not for the purpose of recording Revelation, for that part is complete. Their Bibles are done. But for the purposes of sanctification making us like Jesus, for the purpose of evangelism, sharing the gospel with others. The Holy Spirit also performs the supernatural task of helping us remember and retain what we are learning from Scripture. Again, it's not just about teaching us Scripture. It's about helping us remember it. Because forgotten truth means nothing. I like what Boyce wrote as we wrap up. He says, the Holy Spirit does not give us new doctrines. Rather, he brings old truths to our remembrance. I love that. In other words, what we study, it's not new. It's been around forever. But he's causing us, the Spirit helps us and causes us to remember that which we've learned. Now, is there anything at all required on our end? Yes, there is. We must get into the Word of God. We must read and study our Bibles. I can't think of a better resolution for 2019 for, than for us to commit ourselves to, to you know, regular reading of Scripture, regular study of Scripture, regular attendance here at RHC, or if you're from another church, provided that it you know, faithfully preaches the Word. That's what we should commit ourselves to in this year. I mean, it just began. Commit ourselves to reading and study and, and regular attendance where the word is faithfully preached. 
And I'll tell you, if we commit ourselves to God's word in these ways, we will absolutely see the promise of gospel perspicuity manifested in our lives as the Holy Spirit supernaturally applies it. You'll see it. And I'll just end with this last quote, which I thought was wonderful as well, by Lawrence Richards. He said this, The Holy Spirit reminds us of what we have learned. The person who has made no effort to study and understand what Jesus has said will have nothing to be reminded of. <laughs> well, it's not working in my life. I wonder why. Do you read the Word? No. You got to get in there. You got to read it, man. You got to read it. You got to read it for yourself. You got to commit yourself to a regular attendance at a church, even here, that, that it's faithfully being preached. It's preached all the time, line by line. You got to do your part. You know, sanctification is a, a synergistic thing. It's us getting into the Word and, and engaging the means of grace and God doing His part to sanctify us through that and teaching us and causing us to remember. And I'll tell you what's equally important. Not just learning it, not just remembering it, but actually doing it. Because those who hear and do not do are fooled. We are required to obey it. And, and, and in that obedience, in that act of obedience on our end, it, of course it's spirit-empowered and spirit-led. Our joy is tethered to that. As we obey, our joy is multiplied. 2019, get into the Word, stay in the Word, be at church as much as you can, right? Obey the Word. We work together to do that.